Hi, this is F. Paul Wilson. I'm the guy who invented Repairman Jack and wrote The Keep, and you're listening to Without Your Head. Station of Decapitation Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by number one best-selling author of World War Z in his new book, Devolution. Devolution? I'll ask him how to pronounce that. I should have asked him beforehand. First-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre coming June 16th. You can pre-order right now. Max Brooks. Very cool to have you here. It's good to be there. Thank you. Yeah. Is it Devolution? I ain't particular. All right. Fair enough. I like that. So for people not aware yet, can you give them an idea of what the book is? Well, the story begins with the high-tech, high-end eco-community of Green Loop, nestled in the feet of the Cascade Mountains. And these are not uh, off-the-grid filthy hippies. This is the grid. Uh, this is the new Levittown. This is the wave of the future. Uh, the Green Revolution is personified by technology because its founder believes that the best way to save nature is to live within it uh, and in harmony with it. And so technology allows these people to uh, telecommute to work and to get fresh uh, same-day drone deliveries of their groceries. And because they're smart homes, anything that breaks sends a signal uh, down to the town where uh, the handyman arrives in a driverless electric van, and it's pretty great living. It is all the comforts of the Upper East Side of Manhattan, uh, but in the wilderness, and it works until Mount Rainier erupts. 
and blows out in the direction of Seattle, causing the greatest natural disaster in American history. And while they're on the other side of Rainier, and while they are untouched, uh, the people in Green Loop are completely cut off and completely forgotten. And winter is coming. And these very highly educated, very highly paid David Sedaris fans don't know how to change a light bulb. And so they must dig in and try to survive this coming winter with no tools and no skills. And if that's not bad enough, the eruption has also driven a pack of very large, very hungry Sasquatch creatures away from their traditional foraging ground. And they have to stock up for the winter, too. And they come up against a pen of sheep. Roll film. Mm-hmm. Is there was there any instance uh, incident that like inspired you to think of a story? Oh yeah, yeah. There was uh, there were several, uh, but all based in reality. Because I don't mm-hmm. I don't know how much you know about my work, but basically what I do is I take uh, a fictional premise like zombies or Bigfoot, and I present real world solutions. And mm-hmm. so everything in my book has to be meticulously researched. And one of the inspirations for this book was something that really happened in Boulder, Colorado with mountain lions. And there's a great book about it called The Beast in the Garden. And it was this wonderful community of Boulder where uh, they had built such an idyllic paradise of a town that the deer started to come out of the, the mountains. And people said, oh, my God, this is so wonderful. There's a deer in my garden. It's nibbling on my fruit tree. But as is the case with nature, the herbivores brought the carnivores. And the mountain lion started to follow the deer. And initially, the folks of Boulder were like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Honey, grab the camera. There's a mountain lion in my yard. (laughs) And the park rangers, the folks in charge, the experts, the trained professionals kept saying, "Uh, we need to relocate these vicious carnivorous predators. And the people said, no, no, this is awesome. This is nature. This is we're living in harmony with nature. And sure enough, the little dogs started to get eaten then the big dogs and then people started to get chased and eventually a very fit buff jock high school kid went out for a run behind his school and he disappeared and they found him a few days later gutted and partially eaten by a mountain lion wow uh, yeah, no, I, I'm a fan of your work. Uh, I love World War Z. Actually, I have the audiobook uh, here by me. And uh, I like that about, um, you know, science fiction or, or horror in general is the idea of, uh, you know, setting, uh, talk about something social or, or political, uh, you know, w- within the genre, within, you know, using like a parable. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at us now. We all live in Jaws right now. We are literally <laughs> right. all the story of Jaws, where they mm-hmm. said, well, we can't close the beaches. We won't make money. What's the worst that can happen? Let's try and ignore the problem. Well, here we are. Right. Yeah. Oddly enough, I actually live right uh, by where they shot Jaws. I'm here on Cape Cod. It, and that, of course, Jaws, as we all know, was based on the Jersey Shore attack. So mm-hmm. if good horror has, a, has a, a basis in reality, then it makes it even more terrifying. Yes, exactly. So what, um, what, in, well, first of all, what, what do you think are the best examples of that, of, uh, of either horror or some type of genre story that they would talk about something real, uh, you know, within horror? I mean, I, 
I think some great examples of it, uh, like I said, about Jaws, but also mm-hmm. John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, the idea that he really didn't need to jack it up with phony plot devices, that you're just simply stuck in an Antarctic research station, which are real, and it's easy to get cut off, and suddenly you're fighting for your life. Uh, and there, and Carpenter presented uh, real-life solutions, right? The only, the only thing fictional was the creature, but everything in it, they had to work with the tools and the skills in front of them. And that's all they had, which I thought was great. And, of course, the greatest horror film ever made, Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one of the greatest, I think, one of the greatest movies ever made. You want to talk I about agree. social conflict? I mean, my God. Uh, especially the director's cut of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that man is nothing short of a Greek philosopher uh, who basically took an amazing piece of social commentary about where America was at that point and where America was going. And he threw in zombies. And so he takes you on this incredibly fun ride, a scary ride, terrifying ride. But at the end of it, you go, Oh my God, there was a lot there. And as you start to unpack it, you realize I gotta go watch this again and again and again. And you realize, my God, I learned more from watching this movie than I did in like four years of college. Is that uh, tricky to um, to do both though? Because obviously you want to say something, but you also it's also a horror story. So to to balance out both, it's the toughest thing in the world. It's the toughest job ever because you don't want to be so lectury and didactic that you you either scare people away or you bore them to death or you make them feel stupid. You know, I, in addition to my to my fiction work, I'm on two think tanks. Uh, I have non-resident fellowships at the Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and also at the Modern War Institute at West Point. And I go to a lot of lectures uh, with a lot of smarty smarts. And they're very intelligent, but their their blind spot is that they don't understand how to connect with regular folks, which is one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to go that the didactic professorial route. But if you've got people's attention, especially which is nowadays, you don't want to just blow it and give them empty calories. You know, what? what's the point? You know, my God, you have an audience mm-hmm. of, of thinking, feeling human beings who live in a society and all you're doing is giving them fucking and killing. Uh, I, I think that's horrible. So the toughest thing to do is to go for the middle is to tell a really good story, entertain, enthrall, and at the end of it, hopefully teach somebody something. So were you always into horror? Well, I was always, I was always scared, if that's what you mean. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, when you say into, you know, I was never the kind of person who felt bored and safe in life and therefore needed a sort of cheap pornographic thrill from, from horror in the way that some people do, you know, they kind of, they kind of look at horror like a roller coaster ride, like, Ooh, it's so scary, you know, but they know like it's bullshit and they can go on with their lives. And that wasn't me at all. Uh, I was always terrified by horror films. And so therefore I was always drawn to the kind of films where there, where the people fought back, where there was always a solution. I mean, even evil dead Two. uh, 
wow, that scene when Bruce Campbell's like, let's go into the basement and carve ourselves up a witch. I was like, yeah, fucking A, man. <laughs> it's about time we injected a little Rambo into these punishment films. Because the one thing I couldn't stand was, was uh, films where you're just doomed. And the whole point of it was just watching about how these horny teenagers and the token black guy are just going to get killed. I was never into that because those are punishment movies. You know, you, you show me a movie where the tarantulas are attacking the town and William Shatner has to fight back and I'm there. It's a great movie. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, Ash from, uh, from Evil Dead. And I think that's like the one franchise where it's all about the hero where, you know, most of the franchises are about the killer and like you kind of root almost just to see the killer kill people. But in all the Evil Dead movies and the TV show, it's all about Ash. Yeah. And, and that's that's what I'm into. And, look, and I understand that some people have the psychological people sort of rooting for Jason or Freddie to try to kill these people. Mm-hmm. You know, look, I felt the same way watching Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. I was rooting for the Japanese. <laughs> right. Yeah. You just want to see something happen. Yeah, I get that, but but that's not where that's not where I live. I live in a place where when I see a movie, there's a threat coming, and and then the characters say we're not going to take this lying down, and Ripley says we will track it piece by piece into the vents, and then we will blow it the fuck out into space. And then I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, so <laughs> Dallas getting killed doesn't mean the end of ends. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you mentioned uh, Dawn of the Dead early, which is actually my favorite uh, zombie movie, probably my one of my favorite horror movies anyway. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, Romero did these great uh, zombie movies. So when you wrote a zombie book, you know, you have a built in audience of just like zombies. But also I would think it's difficult. Same thing with Bigfoot to then do something original with with uh, zombies or, or Bigfoot. Well, yeah, well, you know, the funny thing was, ironically, when I when I wrote Zombie Survival Guide, my first book, I didn't think anybody was into zombies. That's why I wrote Zombie Survival Guide was uh, I wrote it to read it. I went looking for a zombie survival guide because I was terrified of zombies. And I thought, well, what if there was a real zombie plague? What what would I do to survive? And I went looking and I couldn't find anything. So I figured, well, shit, I'll write it myself. Same thing with this was. I've watched, oh God, I've watched so many Bigfoot movies. I'm not kidding you. I have a stack of Bigfoot DVDs that go right up to the ceiling. Uh-huh. And if I had found a story similar to Devolution, I just would have watched it and gone on with my day. But I write everything to read. Uh, I, I'm its first customer. So I wanted to write a Bigfoot story that specifically deals with our over-reliance on technology, our interdependence. And also the, the myth of being in harmony with nature, because I find a lot of Bigfoot movies uh, usually go one of two directions. Either it's a peaceful giant, you know, a gentle giant that we must love and respect, or it's an evil monster. Mm-hmm. To which my premise in the book is that it's just an animal with its own set of rules. And if you would just understand these rules and respect them, you'd be fine. But to try to anthropomorphize nature... Uh, I think that is very, very dangerous. I see it all around me, living in a city my whole life. And so that's what I was trying to infuse into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on a much uh, less uh, dangerous level, it's a similar thing here, only it's the rise of a wild turkeys, because the wild turkeys have run among uh, just all around my town. The wild turkeys are everywhere. But 
unfortunately, I don't think any of us will be slaughtered by wild turkeys. Well, unless you believe in that episode of South Park. That's very true. It's very true. But it's the same idea. I also remember a few years ago when I was in uh, Hunter Mountain and uh, there was a black bear in our uh, parking lot. And my friend at the time, she was like, oh, then that cute. Let's go like feed it. And I was like, no, it's a, you know, it's, it's a bear. That's all. That's the last thing we want to do. Yeah. It's a bear. I mean, we have this problem. We have this problem here in LA because the mountain lions are coming down and they're killing people. They're, they're tracking joggers and, and bicyclists. And coyotes, too. Coyotes grabbed a little girl during a picnic, just rushed out, tried to pull her into the woods. I mean, coyotes are vicious. But people think that they're cute and they want to take a picture of them. And I have that line in Devolution where I talk about how more people are injured by buffalo than are bitten by sharks because they try to ride them or take selfies with them. Well, that's true. I mean, that comes from my real visit to Wyoming, and this is what the park ranger told me. So... You know, everything in there I try to put it I try to explore about urban people writing their own rule book about nature. And the truth is when you're in nature's house, you're a guest and you better read the rules. Mm-hmm. And also the, the over reliance on technology, I mean that's uh, clearly a real thing. I didn't have, even have a cell phone till uh, about six years ago because I didn't think I would ever use it. And then my uh, friend Annabelle, she's like, oh, you can't not have a cell phone. But now it's just like uh, if I go anywhere, you, you, I feel kind of nervous if I forgot my cell phone or the battery. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I get it. And I and I love technology and I think it's great. They're moving oh, forward. Sure. I'm not a light. You know, I don't want to throw my wooden shoes into the gears to break the machine. <laughs> yeah. You know, however, you have to build a backup. You have to you have to understand that something could go wrong. And what's your backup plan? You know, in, in the book, I have someone talking about um a scientist hacking his hand to play the piano and he doesn't play the piano, but he, but he attached electro to his hand and programmed the computer to play the piano. And he said, well, how great would it be if you could do a whole cyber suit? And then people who are injured could walk and the elderly could have the agility of a 20 year old. Wouldn't that be great? And then someone asks him, well, what if that suit gets hacked and it, you get to pick up your perfectly legal assault rifle and walk down to the local preschool? Well, that really happened. That, that, technology conference where that guy really did hack his hand and someone asked him that and that someone was me and he did not have an answer. And those people I think should all take a look at the greatest monument to technological failure. It's a wonderful monument. Anyone can see it. it's called the empire state building because on top of it is an airport that was built for the day when we would all be commuting to work in giant bags of hydrogen. I shouldn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah. That was because it was just assumed. It was assumed when the empire state building was built, like, you know, they were starting to use dirigibles and the idea was, well, it's just going to expand and expand. And pretty soon uh, everybody will do that. And the sky will just be filled with blimps and what could possibly go wrong. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, I thought that was the interesting part. Well, it's not a perfect movie by any means, but I did think that was an interesting part of the the remake of Child's Play. Was a lot of it was about uh, the over reliance on, um, on on smart uh, technology, which which I think we need to think about because, like I said, I have like I have no problem with driverless cars. That's the next big thing. I think I think that's great. I think that's fun. <clears throat> However if you don't put in a manual kill switch, you like, you know, the old parking brakes we used to have, where you just pull an analog lever. 
If you don't put that in, that just kills the power. You need to understand that everything that's networked can be hacked. And the number one tool of terrorists today is driving cars into crowds, not the suicide bomb, not the mass shooting, literally just driving a car into a crowd. Mm -hmm. So the fact that folks designing driverless cars are not even thinking of the fact that they're going to put essentially a million guided missiles on the road. Yeah. And I like, uh, I think everyone's probably had this when using like Google maps or something, it will tell you to take like a right, you know, and it's like a building or something. I mean, it does happen often, but it does happen. And like, uh, you know, not to just go take a right into a building, but uh, a computer might not. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, think about right now, think about this quarantine. We're all locked down. And everybody's ordering Amazon fresh same day delivery or whatnot, you know, but how, how many of us are not getting what we ordered or it's getting there too late or just the wrong thing is getting delivered. And, you know, most of the time it's just an inconvenience, but what if, what if you need that? What if it's your food? What if it's your insulin? What if it's something you need to live? Uh, and Amazon just says, Oh, um, we didn't think about that. We didn't think that we would get so many calls and we didn't think that our drivers should probably have an IQ. Uh, and then people, people could die. So mm-hmm. we've built this society where everything is interconnected. And it's also, by the way, it's also, it's built for comfort. You know, it's not built for a better life. It's built for a more comfortable life. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure you remember at the turn of the century, people were talking about genetic cures. Oh, it's going to be these genetic cures, cancer. You go in, they map your DNA, they give you a special pill. Boom, cancer done. You know, Parkinson's, boom, done. Well, none of that has happened. And the greatest medical breakthrough of the, of the 21st century was a blue pill to get boomers dicks hard. <laughs> uh-huh. That was it. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was our polio vaccine. Thanks guys. Uh-huh. Uh, was, well, I was going to say speaking of that, but speaking of your previous one, uh, we could talk about that later. Maybe, but the, uh, um, the pandemic right now, maybe it's too early yet for you to know, but how has that affected, uh, your, you know, what you do? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know about, I mean, I don't know about sales or anything like that, but I do know there's been a lot of, a lot of renewed interest. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, as much as I would love to, to present myself as some sort of visionary, I mean, the truth is all I just did was study history. I didn't try to predict the future because pandemics do tend to come in predictable cycles and sort of everything in world war Z is based on something real. You know, mm-hmm. the zombies may be fictional, but I mean, I made up nothing. I predicted nothing. I literally just reached back into history or read about the world the way it is. And I just said, oh, OK, because um, being very dyslexic and having to struggle in school, I look at all my books as a Ph.D. thesis. I will eventually have to defend. Hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, Romero earlier. Uh uh, maybe you've thought those before. I'm not sure, but uh, I assume he he, he must have uh, read the book or either either of the zombie books. And uh, did he ever contact you? Have you had any interaction with him over the years? Yeah, I did. Oh God, I was so scared. I was so <laughs> so terrified because I mean, the man. First of all, the man was a genius, and mm-hmm. and I ain't got shit on him. There's nothing I could write that could even come close to his work to to Dawn of the Dead. So I sent him Zombie Survival Guy when it first came out, and I thought, here we go. I mean, he's just going to be like, who the hell do you think you are? This is my sandbox. Get the hell out. And he was so generous and kind, and he said, I really like it. And 
and I don't know if this is true or not, but I take it as as um as a shout out that in Land of the Dead, one of the characters has an M1 carbine, hmm. and which I put in Survival Guide, and yeah. I make the point in Zombie Survival Guide of saying you you should not have more firepower than you need. And there is that scene in Land of the Dead where they're they're trying to take his M1 carbine away and give him something more upgunned, and he's like, no, this is all I need. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So yeah, he's been, and we became friends and we, we got a chance to, to hang out several times and I got a chance to talk to him and he's just, I mean, also just what a lovely man. What, what a, a, a smart, funny guy who's really been kicked around. And if anybody had carte blanche to be an asshole, it could have been him and he just wasn't. So, I mean, I, I owe so much to his teachings. And so thank you, George. Romero. Yeah. Uh, what was that like after you put the book out and like that really becomes a thing, like people, you know, studying uh, zombie survivalists and, you know, to become a survivor for the zombie apocalypse? Well, you know, it, it, it almost killed my career in the very beginning because it was marketed wrong. Mm. Because uh, Random House and my agent and the powers that be all tried to position me as Mel Brooks Jr. Right. And that zombie survival guide was a work of humor and that I was making fun of the genre, and that it was so tongue-in-cheek. I mean, you can look on Amazon right now. I think the, I think the, the reviews of it, the early reviews are still there. And these are the reviews that were on my side. And they were trying to position me as a guy who was so uh, deadpan and so witty. And I kept saying, like, no, that's not who I am. And, of course, the horror community came down on me, and rightfully so, because they didn't know who I was. And they thought Mel Brooks's brat was taking a giant dump on everything that they loved. Uh, so I had to take their marketing plan and throw it away and reinvent uh, how I would sell this book and how I would sell myself, how I would reintroduce myself to the world. So I went to Fangoria and I was like, can you please give me an interview and give me a chance to really tell my side of the story? And God bless them. And they did. And we talked about horror movies and we talked about what scared me my whole life. And I, I got a chance to prove that I was a genuine devotee of this genre. And this book was written from a point of love and not snickering. And mm-hmm. so it started to take off. And then I started to do zombie defense lectures. Mm-hmm. And the first one, I think you can still find it on YouTube. I think it was like a uh, university or a college in Colorado. A straight out lecture. And I'm flop sweating like Albert Brooks in broadcast news. <laughs> And I thought, all right, I've done my lecture and now the hands are going to go up for the Q&A and they've suffered through my bullshit. And now they're going to ask me, I don't know about my dad or maybe working on SNL. Is Will Ferrell really that funny? And sure enough, the the questions were zombie questions. And I I thought, oh, my God, maybe I'm not the only person on planet Earth who thinks about this stuff. Mm -hmm. What is it about zombies that captures everyone's attention? Well, I don't know about everyone. I can't, I, I can't speak for anyone. Right. You know, well, I, well, a lot of I, people. I don't know because, you know, if I had any sense of what people want, they wouldn't have fired me off Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Fair enough. Did you ever pitch a zombie say, thing on, on Saturday Night Live? No, no. I mean, I, I just, I didn't fit in and I was, I was rightfully fired. I would have fired me. I just wasn't, I wasn't that type of person. I mean, you've seen the kind of stuff I do and then you see the kind of stuff they do. And if you wonder, how did he ever get there? You know, good question. I can tell you what appeals to, uh, to me. Sure. I, think, I think what appeals to me is, is many things. 
the inhumanity that there is no psychology, you know, like in, uh, in Jaws, when Richard Dreyfuss says it's an eating machine, all it does is swim and eat and make little sharks. That's it. That's terrifying to me. That's like a virus. Uh, what's also terrifying is that it is global. It is macro, not micro. You know, most horror films you watch, and as a kid who was really traumatized by horror movies, my ego defense mechanism was to say, like, well, I just wouldn't go there. Like, okay, don't go on the water. Or, oh, there's a summer camp where there's a killer. Well, don't go on the freaking summer camp. That's your ass. You know, that, but the notion that they could be everywhere. You know, I remember watching Dawn of the Dead for the first time. Uh, that scene when they finally get out of Philly and they wake up the next morning in the chopper and Scott Reiniger looks down and he says, Jesus, it's everywhere. Like my stomach dropped because the notion there was no place to run. Because then that got me thinking, oh my God, you could get killed with ever having seen a zombie. Because once they chew through the threads of civilization, you could die of starvation, dehydration, infection, accidents, depression, suicide. I mean, which made me realize as I got older and started to read about real disasters and war, I was like, oh my God, that's how most people die in wars and disasters without ever having coming into contact with the real threat. It's what the military calls second and third order effects. That's terrifying. Uh, so for me, there's, there's endless questions about a zombie plague. And that's one of the reasons I wrote World War Z was I was sick and tired of seeing a big threat seen through a small lens, you know, uh, one person or a group of people. That's like trying to learn about World War II by watching Saving Private Ryan. Right. And uh, do you think uh, a lot of people ask, ask me to ask you this when I mentioned you to come on the show? Uh, what, what were your thoughts on the movie, on the movie version? I thought the movie was fine and had nothing to do with my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was actually a good thing, because then I didn't have to watch my characters be, be uh, you know, completely mutilated. I actually <laughs> right. emotionally I had a much rougher time watching The Hobbit because I was I, was, I loved that book my whole life. Yeah. And I love, do you remember the old Rankin Bass cartoon? Ah, uh, yes. It's, it's, I think it might be the first thing I saw in the, in the, in the theater. Yeah. That was not, not the Ralph Bakshi one, not the Lord of the Rings, Ralph Bakshi one. Oh, I know. The, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. The Rankin. Yeah. Bass but with yeah. John Houston, Orson Bean, who was my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first book I ever read with my son and we went to go see the movies and I was like, what is this? What have you done? So I didn't have that feeling watching World War Z. You, mm-hmm. you know, once you get past the title, then it's just 28 days later on crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will, say, I will say this. I have no right to complain about anything because the movie brought a lot of attention to the book. Mm-hmm. And if I ever got off track and got a little whiny, two men smacked some sense into me. One was Frank Darabont and the other was Stephen King. Frank Darabont, as you know, created the TV show Walking Dead mm-hmm. and was then fired. And nobody stood up for him. And Frank and I had become friends. And Frank said to me, you know, look, you don't know what it's like to write a screenplay and then have it completely perverted and then have your name still on it. Because remember, mm-hmm. Frank Darabont wrote the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein movie. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't his vision. But everyone thinks that's his vision. You know, Frank said to me, you have your book. 
Your book is pure. You have your, if anyone wonders what your side of the story is, there it is. And nobody can touch that. And then Stephen King wrote to me through Frank and said, all writers sell the movie rights to bring attention to their book. That's the only reason we do it. And more people are reading your book. Mm-hmm. So they didn't say it in these words, but these two veteran geniuses basically said to me, uh, stop whining. You've got nothing to complain about. And the truth is they're right. Yeah. Were you ever asked to write the screenplay? No, nope, no, no. They, I had, they had what they wanted. You mm-hmm. know, this is what I tried to say at, at all the comic cons leading up to the movie. I kept saying like, they have what they want from me. They don't want anything from me anymore. Now they want something from you. They want your tickets. They want your money. You're the ones who have the power now. My, my work here is done. And in a way, that's good because I was spared what Stephen King had to go through on The Shining. I mean, imagine what that would have been like being fired off your own movie. Yeah. Being told by Stanley Kubrick, you don't know how to write. And then the movie is a massive hit and a classic and one of the greatest horror films ever made. And you have to deal Mm -hmm. with that forever. (laughs) Right. uh, I also think uh, World War Z, you know, because I I read it before, uh, listened to it, actually, the audio book before uh, before I saw the movie. Uh, I don't know if it would ever work as like just a a standalone movie. I think it would have to have been like a series. I'm glad you said that, because I I do think, you know, as, as much as horror fans like to poke fun at Brad Pitt. I mean, I do think we have to take a step back and just look at this reasonably. You know, my, the premise of my book is that there is no hero Mm -hmm. and, and big crises have to be solved by us all coming together and doing our part. And I would never change that. That is the, that is the sole theme of the story. Uh, However, as a movie, as a 90 minute, two hour film, how do you do that? I wouldn't know how to do that. I wouldn't know how to do uh, a, a movie where there's no hero. Uh, I mean, may, I, I think in in other formats it works, mm-hmm. but you know, God bless him for trying. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was, I was, I had the same exact thought. Was uh, you know, especially big movies are built around uh, the leading man or the leading woman, you know, the star power, and it just. <laughs> It does a, It's a unique story. It doesn't really work that way. I don't think. Yeah. How would you, how would you do that? And, and, and the hero has to be active. You can't just go around mm-hmm. interviewing people like, you know, good luck getting hundreds of millions, millions of people to watch that. So I don't <laughs> right. know. I don't know. And, and I wouldn't know how. And so I'm just happy that I wrote my book and I'm also happy. I'm also very, very lucky. The movie allowed me to do a complete audio book with an all-star cast. Cause I yeah, never would have had the most do that. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, I have, I have the, uh, the old one, but I have the, the uh, new one with the cast, which is, uh, it's awesome. Uh, I'm a big audiobook fan. Uh, I walk a lot every day and I listen to audiobooks. right now. I'm listening, finally listening to the stand. I have four hours left out of the 48 hour runtime. I think it is. Oh. Who but, reads it? Uh, I'm not sure it's on audible. Not sure the name of the. Uh, it's not Stephen King, but do you, I saw that your uh, the um, the audiobooks are already up for presale too for uh, Devolution. Do you do oh, the audiobook? Yes. No, we have one. Well, I'm on it, but once mm-hmm. again, just like with World War Z, we're doing an all-star cast, which is, by the way, that's one of the reasons the book was delayed. 
because we couldn't get the cast safely into a studio. So we had to go back and adapt and make sure that everybody could set up home studios, including me. Uh, Random House sent me this giant case, looked like a gun case, with all this fancy equipment and with no technical expertise, I literally had to convert this little cubbyhole under my stairs into a recording studio, you know, putting up shower curtains and blankets and all that stuff in order to do this. And so everybody had to do this. And we're working, we're recording, and just like with World War Z, like I went and found my Dreamcast and I wrote them all letters and they agreed and it's going to be a top-notch audiobook because like you, audiobooks mean a lot to me because of my dyslexia, because mm -hmm. I couldn't function in school and because my mother, God bless her, took my books to the Institute for the Blind, the Braille Institute, got them read onto audio cassette so I could listen to books. And that was oh, really awesome. important to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, as, and so I got into audiobooks as a kid. In fact, on World War Z, that's how I got F. Murray Abraham. Because uh, he's, a, he's a titan in that world. And he said, like, listen, yeah. I, don't roll out of, I don't roll out of bed to do an <laughs> audiobook for anything less than a small fortune. So I wrote mm -hmm. him a letter and I'm like, listen, when I was a kid, I listened to Red Storm Rising, where you played all the parts and you showed me this could be an art form. And I don't have a fortune to give you, but I can give you my thanks for like making my 17 year old self's dreams come true. And <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all. That's all. It really is one of my favorite audiobooks. It's also sort of like it makes it kind of gives it that vibe of like an old uh, like radio drama where it, where you have everyone you know doing the different parts. Oh yeah, and and it was it was uh, a joy and a trial trying to get everybody on board. And I'll never forget I. I'd met Simon Pegg and I asked him to do a part and he agreed and he was in London and they sent me the audio clip and it was downloading on my computer and I like went off to do something else. And then suddenly this voice popped up on my computer. I'm like, who the hell is that? I'm like, holy shit, that's Simon Pegg doing an American accent. Uh, they were, they were just all, it was so great. It was so great to get everybody to do that. And, um, and it was a blast. And the same thing, I mean, I, I only wish I could have been in the studio for Devolution to see all these amazing people, but mm -hmm. uh, we all have to go. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it's uh, Grover Gardner who does the stand. Grover Gardner. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out because uh, it's a great story. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's, it seems like it would go without saying, but uh, – if you have a great, if you have a good, and you really need a good reader to, to for the audiobooks to work, which it seems like obvious, that's obvious, but it really does take away if it's someone that's uh, not interesting to listen to. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is another reason why I'm grateful to Brad Pitt because, like I said, he gave me the mojo with Random House to do a proper audiobook because on Zombie Survival Guide, you know, when I had nothing, when I had no power behind me, they just hired some guy. So to this day, I have not listened to it because, uh, you know, I wanted it to be a real serious book and I wanted to get someone and they were just like, we don't, you know, no. Uh, whereas with World War Z, they were like, okay, because that costs a lot of money for studios and for audio engineers and to pay individual people to do that. That cost them a fortune, but they assumed because there was going to be a big Brad Pitt movie, they would recoup their losses. So as a result, uh, we got, I mean, I don't know if any, I don't know when was the last time anyone ever did that, that they got a giant cast like that to do an audiobook. 
Yeah, I think I think the Bible actually has one. So uh. <laughs> maybe, maybe I mean, show me another audio project where you get Henry Rollins and Alan Alda on the same project. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're not on the Bible one. I don't believe. No, no. I'm not positive though. But yeah, <laughs> it could be wrong up there. <laughs> so uh, I was going to bring up the hills have eyes because I think a similar theme where uh, like people who are used to uh, having it not easy but are forced to become kind of animalistic themselves. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the hills have eyes and uh, do you see any similarities to a devolution? Yeah, a little, a little bit, but you know, like I mean, that one I saw that when I was a kid, the original mm-hmm. one. Oh. That one skit. Who who is the ball guy? What was you remember? He was in smoking in the boys' room. That music video. Oh, I've had him on the Michael Berryman. Yeah, I've had him on the show many times. A great guy. Oh my god! Yeah, and you super scary in the movie. Oh yeah, I mean you know I grew up in the in the early eighties, and when cable TV just came out, so that's how I got into zombies. Was watching horror films when they were on. Uh, when my parents were out to dinner or something like that. And so that was sort of my education. And, and my God, because that was when horror was really scary. You know, that's when it was really terrifying because they didn't really know what they were doing. And they were just experimenting. But that was also when you had genuine auteurs like John Carpenter. And, I mean, I'm a kid watching The Fog. And just thinking, oh, my God. Right, you gotta, I, I'm got to get me out of here, Hal Holbrook. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, what, what were some of your favorite horror movies uh, that got you? I know, obviously, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, Dawn of the Dead, one of the greatest movies ever made. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, I, you know, I agree. With you. I, I think that horror as a genre is in the is similar to comedy in that it's not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, when was the last time a comedy won Best Picture? Same thing with horror. When was the last time that won Best Picture? Of course not. You know, those, those are the ones that get pissed on by the snooty snoots. Uh, but Dawn of the Dead, I would put it up there with Citizen Kane. Uh, there were other movies. I mean, one of them was a Bigfoot movie. It was made for TV, Snow Beast. And it was Bo Swenson and Yvette Mimo and uh, Robert Logan and Clint Walker from The Dirty Dozen. Oh, nice. And... Man, when you see Clint Walker screaming for his life, he's never done that in any other movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was a really well done TV movie. And when you're a little kid, because it's also shot like Jaws from the point of view of the monster. Oh my God! When it comes through the window and Sylvia Sidney sees it, you know from Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Whew. Uh, so that was a that was a big one. Uh, that, that's one that I could watch over and over again. Um, I also and I guess. To me, some science fiction movies, to me, are horror films, like them. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea that giant ants could break through the ground and, and kill you. And to me, the first part of them is exactly like the first part in Aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, because forensic horror scares the shit out of me, even now. The idea that something happened and you're sort of picking through the, the debris and trying to figure out what happened uh, I mean, remember the, the act one of aliens is like, Oh God, cause you can, you don't see it, but you can imagine it. You can imagine the colonists fighting yeah. for their lives and losing and knowing they're going to die and children under the table crying and mothers trying to comfort them. But the mothers knowing that they're all going to die. Uh, same thing in them. You can picture the trailer 
and the giant jaws ripping it out and pulling out the mother and the father while the little girl is, is running into the desert in the dead of night. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had, there was a lot of films, uh, a lot of films out there, but you remember mm-hmm. also, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I'm 47, about to be 48. I am of an age where they put commercials for horror films just right there on TV in the middle of the day. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm 44. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, like, you know, you sitting there GI Joe's on the carpet, you know, watching <laughs> uh-huh. He-Man, and then suddenly there would be a commercial for silent scream, uh-huh. you know, or evil speak. And you'd be like, Jesus Christ, what is that? <laughs> Yeah, I remember uh, as a kid, uh, I mentioned this before, but the scariest uh, uh, thing to me was the trailer for the movie Magic. And it's it's not it's not very long. And it's just uh, like a ventriloquist dummy doing this little uh, poem. And he's like, and your dad at the end. And what really scared me was we had a ventriloquist dummy in the house. And my older brother's nine years older would tease me with it. But like you could relate to it because, you know, you, you had it in the house. Oh God, yeah. Now, and I can tell you one of one of the the most terrifying ads ever. And I and I was so scared I didn't see the movie till I was in my twenties. It was Sasquatch: The Legend of Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And that came on in the late seventies, and it was the only time that a Bigfoot movie ever played like in the theaters. And so the crazy part was, and and some of your listeners will know what I'm talking about. It's an Easter egg, but. There's a scene in the trailer that never made it to the movie. And it's like a little Native American boy, and he's like shooting an arrow, and it goes across a field, and he runs and he picks it up, and he shoots it again, and he keeps getting closer and closer to the tree line. And then suddenly he looks up, and this, he sees this dark mass, and he screams, and he starts running for his life, and this creature's chasing him. I mean, I pretty much pissed my pants when I saw that. <laughs> then when the, when the movie came out, I'm like, I'm not going to go see that thing. And it took me to my 20s to get up the nerve to see it. And that scene was not in it. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. The, uh, that's a weird question, but do you believe in Bigfoot? I believe in the possibility. I, mm. I mean, I'll put it this way. Like, I don't believe in anything until I see some scientific evidence. Yeah. I'm, I'm a hardcore evidence-based fact person and that's in everything you know show me a qualified scientist with provable evidence show me a a a body or a bone with some serious uh, carbon dating then yeah i'll totally believe in it but i will say this there is no reason scientific reason that a species of great ape could not exist in north america Mm -hmm. Uh, because there there are some sort of horror things out there that simply could not exist Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, and I love giant ants, like we talked about with them. But giant ants can't exist, certainly not as they are. You can't just grow an ant to mm-hmm. to the size of a Winnebago because they would have no oxygen. They would need to grow lungs, which they don't have, and their exoskeletons would be so heavy that they couldn't move. So, like mm-hmm. things like that, just can't happen. Uh, but a giant ape. Uh, based on Gigantopithecus, which was the real Sasquatch that lived in the Pleistocene era, if there was a, a species, a subspecies of Gigantopithecus living in North America, I don't see any reason it could not exist. And I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a few minutes ago about, you know, it was like the only Bigfoot movie that was played in theaters. And really, when I'm thinking about it, like the only one I could think of, like a modern time, would be like Carrie and the Hendersons. 
So, yeah, no, I, I, you know, when I, you... I, you go on, sorry. Yeah. I, I, I have no patience for that movie. <laughs> but I was just going to say, like, when you, when you were saying that you were going to... When you first started, like, I'm writing a Bigfoot novel, was there anybody uh, that were, like, like trying to talk you out of it? Because, you know, sometimes stuff about Bigfoot isn't seen in the in the best light. Oh, of course. I mean, that's that's the thing with, with everything I write. I mean, I mean, let's be you're a horror fan, but uh-huh. you have to remember, guys like you and I, when I wrote Zombie Survival Guide, were in the minority. Mm-hmm. You know, now now zombies are in pop culture and everybody's into it. But when I wrote Zombie Survival Guide, nobody was into zombies. It was the most niche of niche. You'd go to the video store and there was like almost no zombie movies. It was like the freaking thriller video. Oh my god, those first few years, <laughs> mm-hmm. breaking rocks and and doing book signings, and people thought I was, you know, that it was funny, and they were quoting thriller. And then that horrible, horrible, horrible movie that really did make our lives miserable, Return of the Living Dead. You know, they're back from the grave and ready to party. It came out the same year as Day of the Dead, and it it. Uh-huh. It overshadowed Day of the Dead, and it ruined, quite frank, frankly, it ruined the zombie genre for decades because it was silly and goofy and campy. And uh, that, uh, I despise that movie because it made zombies a joke. So the first few years when I was trying to be serious, of course people thought I was being funny because they kept thinking of, of Return of the Living Dead. So with Sasquatch, even now, people who are not into it are thinking Harry and the Hendersons. But, you know, the truth is I cannot write anything for the marketplace. If I sit down and start to think about what will be popular or what will not be popular, I'm dead in the water. Uh, I don't know what's, what's out there. I don't know what people like. I don't know what they don't like. I don't know what's going to hit. Uh, and I'm not even going to try. I start with me. I start with what would I want to read? And that has been my compass needle since day one. You mentioned about zombies being mainstream. Like, you know, I, uh, same thing. I remember growing up loving uh, Dawn of the Dead, uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead. And, uh, but now, like, like they actually have, like, kid shirts with zombies on, like The Walking Dead, like in Walmart and stuff. And, uh, like, that would have never happened when, when, when either of us were kids. No, no, no. No, I mean, that it's... Which, by the way, I mean, I actually, I don't watch Walking Dead because they fired Frank Darabont. I mean, everyone asks me, like, what do you think of The Walking Dead? I'm like, I don't know, because I love the first season, but I took a very moral stand. This is before I knew Frank, before we were friends. The idea of firing the show's creator, who, by the way, had to fight tooth and nail. I don't know if you remember this, and it's a horror. Oh, yeah. You remember, AMC was embarrassed about that show. Mm Mm-hmm when I, you'd watch Mad Men and then they'd have a commercial on for Walking Dead and they mm-hmm. literally said, trust us. They were so ashamed of it. And they had the cast on to try to talk about it. I remember one of them said, it's not about zombies. Fuck you. <laughs> and then suddenly uh, it's a hit, their first moneymaker ever. And as a reward, they fired the creator. So I tuned out, you know, good, yeah. good luck, but... You ain't you ain't you ain't getting me on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a uh, huge fan of the comic book. Uh, I used to always say on the podcast uh, that it would make a great TV show, and I do think think I deserve some uh, a cut of it. But, but that's <laughs> fun. Okay. But yeah, yeah, let me fire you. 
<laughs> right then, there. then I was fired. Yeah. Uh, but uh, also about Dawn of the Dead, because uh, one of my highlights of doing the show was I hosted a, a, a Dawn of the Dead a panel at a Bizarre EC uh, Atlantic City a horror movie convention. And uh, Ken Free talked about, um, you know, he said, like, everyone now, you know, talks highly about the movie. He said, but at the time, like, it really ruined his career in a lot of ways because he said it was seen as, like, like one step above doing like uh, pornography, doing like a really oh, yeah, gritty I saw, panel. I, I saw that on YouTube. Oh, cool. I, I saw that. It wasn't, didn't he talk about that? He was like, he was called up before like the screen actors guild or something like that. And like, he had to apologize yes. to that. Yeah. And like, he lost real friends and you know, people like some of his actor friends stopped talking to him. And Oh yeah. I know, mean, this is the way stuff. it opened. And this is not just the way it works in horror. It's the way it works in, in art, in science, in any kind of discovery. The people who always go first, the trail, the trailblazers, they always get uh, nailed to a piece of wood and set on fire. You know, George Romero, we owe everything to that man. But people didn't love him at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the man didn't have a pot to piss in. Uh, it's the people who come afterwards, the bandwagon jumpers, the people, the exploiters, you know, they make the money, but the guys who are first that say, I'm going to do no, no. Oh my God. Yeah. I saw that. I saw that with Ken for, I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. You know, Romero just like created this whole thing that people just take like, you know, like zombies, you have to kill the brain to kill them. And I mean, that's really just from Night of the Living Dead. And uh, it's just like yep. ingrained in people that that's, oh, yeah, that's how you kill zombies today. Well, and you know, that's why I loved it so much when I saw Night of the Living Dead. Because my evolution of zombies is, I, the first zombie movie I saw was not Night of the Living Dead. It was, I think, I don't know what the name is. They keep changing it. It was that Italian cannibal one where the uh, Italian commandos go to New Guinea. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just a kid. like 12 yeah. or 13. I, you know, I was watching cable TV to try to see some boobies, and <laughs> suddenly I see this horrible movie, and that was that was a doomed movie. That's where you're you're doomed. There's no way out, mm-hmm. and that 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 terrified me. That put zombies on the brain for years, and then I saw Night of the Living Dead, and to me, Night of the Living Dead was hopeful. There, mm-hmm. there there are rules. There's ways you can survive. The question is. Will you? Will you make the right choices? And then when I saw that, I was like, okay, now I get it. Now that there are rules, now that there's a way out, you got to find the way. And so I'm, that's why I, I loved him so much. And that's why I spent a decade afterwards thinking, what would be my way? How would I survive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Dawn of the Dead, like it does have that doom feeling to the movie, but the end, uh, which I know the original end was, you know, they all died, which really would have completely right. changed the movie. But uh, them getting away, it, it adds that level of, oh, you know, there is some hope here. There is, you know, these, who knows what happened. You kind of fill in what in your own mind what happens to them after they get on the helicopter. Yeah, and for me, I'm a very hopeful person. I don't, I don't believe in doom and gloom because you don't. You don't have a choice. Life is hard enough. You gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta fight for, you gotta fight for survival. And so, any movie that gives me a chance, you know, then, then I'm, I'm with you. Come on, Ripley, let's get him. <laughs> so, uh, Devolution's described as a found uh, document novel. Uh, why that approach to the to the book? 
You know, I thought that would that would add a level of mystery because I see the town of Greenloop as the lost colony of Roanoke. <clears throat> the, the, the book begins with the fact that Mount Rainier has exploded. It's the greatest natural disaster in human history. Uh, everybody's focused on Seattle, Tacoma. And while this is all happening, another town, a tiny little town on the other side of Rainier disappears. No one knows what happened. And, and it, much later, a rescue team that's looking for other survivors of Rainier happens across this, this charred wreckage. And no one understands what went wrong. And they find the journal. And the question is, is the journal real? Is it not? So the premise is that the ranger who finds it gives it to the brother of Kate Holland, who was a resident at Greenwood. This is her journal. He gives the journal to me to publish, hoping that people will, will try to find Kate because she disappears. She doesn't die. We don't know where she is. Uh, so the book is the published journal of Kate Holland, but it's also interdispersed with interviews of people who have direct knowledge of the disaster. And, and I call it like the Greek chorus to give us some perspective. So, because the people who are in Greenwood have no idea what's going on outside of their little town. So you bring in the ranger who talks about the, the disaster of Rainier. You bring in the brother who talks about technology of what's going on. You also bring in uh, Steve Morgan, who wrote the basically the field guide to Sasquatch. He's fictional and made him up. That gives us some backstory into into Sasquatch physiology, because as you know, my my level of research for every hour of writing, there's a, a ten to a hundred hours of researching, and the research I did with Sasquatch was I went back into the the classic. Uh, what do you call them? The, the classic eyewitness accounts. Mm -hmm. But I also have a stack of books even higher about real primatology. So Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey were as important to my work as was Grover Krantz or Dr. Jeff Meldrum. So the, the book you could pre-order right now and it'll be uh, out June 16th and you can get it uh, all, all different ways. Like I said, I, I'm an audiobook guy, so I'm going to get the audiobook. Uh, yeah, but you can I, get it you know, yeah. all the different ways. Oh yeah, I mean, I can tell you that that uh, you know everyone asks me, "What do you think of your own work?" And I'm like, I, I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> but I can tell you, the audiobook's going to be great because mm -hmm. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in, into my audiobooks, and I try to make them better than the written word. So the audiobook's going to be, it's going to be something when, especially when you when you see the cast. I think we're going to start to release um, pictures of people who are recording it as you go. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I like that. So, uh, what has the uh, response been? Uh, you know, um, it wouldn't be like a wide response yet, but uh, critics who have gotten a chance to read it, what's the response been? I've been very, very, very lucky. Uh, just like when we talked about giving Zombie Survival Guide to George Romero, I gave a copy of this book to Les Stroud. And if you don't know who Les Stroud is, he's Survivor Man. He mm -hmm. was when we talk about the, the trailblazers and the rough time they have, he was the first guy to do a survival show and he did it for real. You know, none of this bullshit about having a camera crew with you and then spending the nights in hotels. He would go into the wilderness by himself with his camera gear, film himself trying to survive in the harshest environments on planet earth. Half the time he couldn't do it. 
that that was part of the of the reality of it was him saying like this is too hard this is too dangerous if i keep doing this i'm going to die mm-hmm. so i uh, i spent the last i don't know 10 years 20 years i can't remember since the turn of the century watching this guy and just being a huge devotee of him and and his work was influential in mine and then he did a bigfoot show trying to find bigfoot mm-hmm. So I gave a copy to him and I thought, oh God, you know, my stomach's tightening because just like with Romero, like what if he doesn't like it? What if he says like, you got everything wrong, buddy? You know what you're talking about. And he loved it. So thank God. <laughs> yeah. I do, uh, yeah, I read his uh, review on the, on the website. Yeah, I got, I, I got very lucky. You know, uh, my emotional makeup is I don't really go happy or sad. I usually go nervous and relieved. So I was very relieved and very grateful. Uh, yeah, I I was going to ask you about your dad, but I do want to ask one question. Um, uh, was he supportive of you, uh, you know, deciding to, to be an author and an author uh, in the horror genre? Well, you you know, initially my father didn't get my work. You know, he read zombie survival guide. He's a comedian. So he would read it and say, it's too, it's too thick and it's too dense. You gotta, you gotta cut it down and get to the jokes. (laughs) And I was like, dad, there's no jokes. This is all real. I mean, this is the thing. We're, we're very different animals when it comes to our art. And this is why the first time we've ever worked together is in the uh, coronavirus PSA we did together. Because everyone's like, really like going to work Thank you. Yeah, everyone said, when are you going to work with your dad? And I'm like, when we have something to work on. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and finally we did this notion of like, Hey, asshole, stay at home because it's not just about you getting infected. It's about you infecting other people. And how am I going to do that? Well, I'll show a father and a son. So that was our, our first collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there ever, not even by him, but was there just pressure in general for you, like being the son of Mel Brooks to become a comedian? Of course. Yeah. I mean, you, Mel Brooks Jr. That's, that's probably, you know, why I got hired for SNL and that's why I got fired when they realized they didn't get Mel Brooks Jr. They got Max Brooks. Who, who wants that? Same thing with Zombie Survival Guide. They wanted to position me as Mel Brooks Jr. Didn't work. Uh, and then it was my choice to say, no, I'm not Mel Brooks Jr. I'm Max. If you position me as Mel Brooks Jr., you're going to disappoint everyone, including me. If you position me as Max Brooks, you may not get an initial interest but you'll get a genuine product. And so that was the case in, in, in the beginning. Uh, I mean, that's, that was a long time ago, but yeah, it was a fight in the beginning to, to try and prove myself as a separate entity with a separate voice. Uh, Um, and it, it was, it was not easy. I'll tell you that. Um, it was funny when, when I zombie survival guy first came out, I started doing horror conventions you always knew who was going to try to talk to me about my dad because right. there'd be young people on young people in line. And then there'd be some dude with gray hair. There'd be some baby boomer coming. And I'd be like, Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and it would literally be like, um, you know, I'm a big fan of your father and I'm a comedian myself and I've written a script and I think your dad, I'd be like, no. <laughs> here's, here's the number of his office. We'll call his assistant and get in contact with him <laughs> yourself. Uh, you know but i will say this that my father people always say like was your dad really helpful in your work and the truth is he was he i I will admit this he was very helpful in my work but not as mel brooks the comedic genius mel brooks as the world war ii combat 
veteran. Because mm-hmm. let's remember, there's a whole other side to my dad that the world doesn't know a lot about, which is my dad was a combat engineer in World War II. So a lot of, this, uh, of the, the lessons in Zombie Survival Guide were taught to me by Corporal Melvin Kaminsky, who fought his way across France and Germany mm-hmm. uh, and defused mines and booby traps and knows the difference. I mean, the M1 carbine literally came from the fact that my father introduced me to that weapon and said it was the best weapon he ever handled. It was light. It was easy to handle. It was easy to break down. It had almost no kick. Uh, it had no stopping power, but he wasn't fighting the Japanese. He was fighting the Germans. So he loved the M1 carbine. And so that prompted me to research it. So, uh, yeah, that's an amazing story. But the, so uh, what are you currently doing during the pandemic? Uh, well, I'm just trying to get through the day at this point. Um, you know, I'm all my the funny thing is here is the crazy thing was both my books are coming into play. World War Z is starting to play out on the macro level. You know, the, the disease starting in China, how Israel responds, how our own government's cocking it up. Uh, there, there's way too many. I mean, literally the fact that I have a fake cure in World War Z and <laughs> it's happening here. <laughs> right. uh, so, so that, but that's all happening outside of my home. Devolution is very personal. And I'm, li- I'm living it right now. Because what's happened to my characters, the idea that they're cut off and that they have to survive with what's right in front of them, that's happening a lot to me because suddenly I am becoming a carpenter and electrician and plumber and gardener. Gardeners, I mean, you know, as you've read in the book, there's a whole thing in that about trying to garden for survival. Well, that's what I'm doing, not because I can't get deliveries, but the truth is I don't want my wife going to the grocery store getting leafy greens. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I, I, that's what I planted uh, the day before the lockdown. My wife's like, we don't have any leafy greens. I'm going to go to the store. I'm like, don't you dare. So I went to the gardening store, got a bunch of seedlings, put them in the, in the dirt. And we've been living off of them ever since. Uh, there's a, there was a literal scene in devolution where the husband and wife are arguing because he was going to go onto the roof to brush off the solar panels. And she's like, if you fall, we can't take you to the hospital. And even if you don't need to go to the hospital, even if you're stuck on the couch, you go from being a giver to a taker. And that's exactly the conversation I had with my wife when it rained and I was going to clean out the gutters. And she's like, if you fall and break your ankle, A, you can't go to the hospital because it's choked with COVID-19 patients, but also B, you can't contribute. You're stuck on the couch. And in our nation of three, me, my wife, and my son, that's one third of the population taken out and taking. So, mm-hmm. In many ways, I am I am living devolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it is weird that uh, obviously you had no idea of that when you're writing the book. It's not like you wrote it in a week or during a month or something. So it's really weird timing, you know. Well, you know, it, it devolution is a study in disaster, but disasters, no matter what they are, pandemic or you know natural mm-hmm. disaster or war, they all tend to follow a pretty predictable pattern. And right. I've spent the last, you know, 20 years. Well, I mean, the truth is since I was 13 being interested in those patterns and sort of what does it take to survive when the system that keeps you alive and safe collapses out from under you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah uh, just the little thing is like I cut my finger really bad. Like um, it was a little maybe almost two months ago, but it was right when everything started. And like I really debated going to the ER, but it, like the top of my thumb was actually like coming off. And so I had to go. But it was a really strange experience. Just go in there and uh, you had to get your temperature before that you in and put a mask on. But, you know, it's just a little, a little thing that you I don't think everyone think about. Like right now, if something happens to you unrelated to covid uh, there's not really places to go like there was before. Or if there is, like you're taking a bigger risk. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, my zombie lectures, you know, they, they're they all they're all fun, but they're, they're, they were disaster lectures. And I would think, I would say, like, guys, you need to think about how is your, this biological entity called your body, how's it going to keep functioning when the, there's, the water stops running, the power goes out, the refrigerator goes out? I mean, uh, your your toxic poo that's coming out of your body can't suddenly be flushed away to a sewage treatment plant and it backs up mm. in your house with all its diseases. Uh, it takes a lot to keep the human body going and we all depend on each other. And, you know, that's, like we said before, going back to the beginning, I'm sort of, that's that's the razor's edge to walk on because I do want to impart all this stuff. I do want to help people understand about how complicated and delicate civilization is and what it takes to keep it running. But I don't want to do it in some sort of, you know, sleepy finger wagging lecture. I want, I want to entertain. I want people to have fun the same way George Romero educated me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And uh, anyway, this has been great. And I hope people uh, check out the movie, uh, the movie, the book, sorry, Devo- Devolution. And uh, you can pre-order it right now. And it was uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Pleasure to talk to you, man. You take care. Be safe. Don't cut yourself. Thank you. I will not. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Baby, can you see that I am so happy? Oh, yeah!